okay, well, you know, when I wear this, it reminds me of a time that I felt confident and therefore it you know, may actually boost my confidence, may genuinely create some of the same mental states. Welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where it's my job to interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest on the show is Caroline Webb. Caroline is the CEO of Seven Shift, a firm that shows people how to use insights from behavioral science to improve their working life. Her book on that topic, which is called How to Have a Good Day, was published in 16 languages and more than 60 countries. The book was hailed as one of the top must-read business books of 2016 by both Inc. and Forbes and described by Fortune as one of their top self-improvement through data books. Caroline's work has been widely featured in various different media outlets, including the Financial Times, Forbes, New York Times, Washington Post, The Economist, Wired, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and many, many others. To learn more about Caroline and her work, you can go to howtohaveagoodday.com. On the website, you'll find information about the book itself. You'll also find a list of free resources as well as information on a series of new workshops designed to help you be your best at the office and beyond and how you can sign up for them. In the interview, Caroline shares her diverse career path and why the quality of her day-to-day experience didn't necessarily improve as she moved up the career ladder. She tells us how she decided to write a book on improving our professional lives, why focusing too narrowly on long-term career goals can backfire, why she hums the song I Feel Love by Donna Summer before client workshops, the strategies that she uses to teach corporate leaders how to build resilience in the face of failure, and finally, how she unintentionally ended up in a professional dance audition that failed spectacularly and what she learned from that experience. Before I turn things over to Caroline, I wanted to let you know that you can keep in touch with me, your host, by sending up with uh, four, my weekly newsletter, The Weekly Contrarian, which lands in your inbox every Thursday morning and shares an article that I wrote along with a book I may have read, another article that piqued my interest, a quote that I may have liked, really anything that helps challenge conventional wisdom and changes the way that we view the world. You can sign up for the newsletter by going to my website, ozanvarol.com. That's O-Z-A-N-V as in Victor, A-R-O-L.com. Or if you're not driving, you can text my first name, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Not only will you get the newsletter every Thursday, but you'll also get my free ebook, The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking, delivered to your inbox as well. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Caroline Webb. Caroline, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I want to begin with your background. In reading your book, a passage in the opening chapter really stood out to me. You wrote, and I quote, I've been a hotel maid, receptionist, and waitress. I've had demanding careers as an economist, management consultant, and an executive coach. I worked in the private sector and the public sector. I've been part of a huge global company and I've launched my own tiny startup. And through it all, I noticed the same thing over and over again, that the quality of my day-to-day experience wasn't necessarily defined by my title, unquote. Now, that's a pretty contrarian message. Most of us assume that the quality of life improves as we move up the ladder. Why was your experience different? 
Well, my first job was at 14 in a supermarket, and it was definitely not a fancy job by any means. You know, the, the uniform that I was issued still had the stains on it from the previous, <laughs> previous <laughs> employee. But I was really struck by how much I enjoyed it. And you know, I really enjoyed the fact that there was a clear sense of what good looked like and that, you know, you had the feedback, the immediate feedback from customers about whether you were doing a good job and there was a lot of camaraderie and so on. And I thought, well, this is great. The working world is fantastic. You know, this is, um, th- if this is how it, how it is, then, you know, bring it on. And then, of course, you know, throughout my life, I experienced the opposite. I experienced being in a job that didn't quite fit or where the culture wasn't very supportive. And I noticed that you could be in a job that had a very fancy title, you could be in a company that had a very fancy brand, and still not feel that sense of purpose and direction and usefulness. And that just really stuck with me. I think by the age of 21, 21, 22, I'd had those two polar experiences. And I just got very interested in what it was that made it possible for people to be happy in jobs that were not not necessarily the peak of their career and how to make the most of their situation, whatever the constraints were. I think that's such an important message. We often fall in love with the outcome and the outcome in, the, in this case might be the title, but not the process of getting there and the process of actually what the day-to-day is going to look like once we arrive. Speaking of jobs that weren't quite a good fit for you, so you mentioned uh, in a different context that you spent your early career trying to become a professional economist, and that didn't really work well for you. Can you tell us about that? Well, you know, I love the idea of economics. And like you, I had aspirations to be an astrophysicist uh, early on in my life. And then I, I took a class in economics when I was 16, and it blew my mind, the whole idea that you could actually be rigorous about human stuff as opposed to natural science. And, and so I thought, well, this was amazing. What I didn't realize was that my economics teacher then was really quite idiosyncratic. He was a South African who'd been imprisoned on Robben Island. He taught economics as a system of thought to be critical thinkers. And I thought this was amazing and loved it. I mean, it was very barely linked to the curriculum that we were actually probably <laughs> supposed to be following. But you know, in the first chunk of my career was spent in Central and Eastern Europe, helping to uh, support the transition from communism to capitalism. So again, it was very sort of messy, human, as much about psychology as it was about anything that was uh, traditionally attached to economics. But then as I went on in my economics career, I was very attached to the idea of working for a a big international body like the IMF or the World Bank and, you know, trying to make a difference in the world with economics. And as as time went on, I started to realize I didn't actually like economics. (laughs) 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 You know, economics back then, the behavioral revolution hadn't really, you know, broken over uh, the the mainstream field back then in, in the mid 90s. And so, you know, I just hated all of the stupid assumptions and the pointless mathematical models, which didn't describe human behavior. And yeah, well, that was a bit of a shame because I'd really, you know, spent quite a lot of time, you know, gearing up for this, uh, this mythical career. That was a bit of a shock. And I, I remember actually being on a, you know, I was on a master's course, worked for a few years, gone back to study. And I was just really struggling. And, you know, for the first time, academically, really, really struggling. Turns out that happens if you really hate the subject. <laughs> That really, as I was mentioning to you before we hit record here, that really resonates with my own experience majoring in astrophysics in college. Uh, I thought I was 
pay my dues. I had these really audacious goals of becoming an astronaut someday, which required going and getting a PhD in, in some scientific field. And I, you know, it was only until my senior year at the very end of college that I realized I didn't like the substance of the math and physics classes I was taking. I mean, I like the process of thinking like a rocket scientist, but I did not like the substance of the astrophysics classes. And which is one of the reasons why I ended up switching to law. Now, was there a, for you, was there a, a triggering event or, or something that made you realize that you actually did not enjoy the, the day-to-day life of being a professional economist? Well, you know, the funny thing is that I actually really enjoyed the work in Central and Eastern Europe. And I realized that the reason I was interested in it was because it was about human change. And, you know, there's an obvious now line between that realization and the work I do today, which is, you know, in coaching and supporting people through and their teams through, you know, change in their professional lives. I, of course, that's obvious now. But at the time, I couldn't quite work out why it was I'd loved that first chunk of my career and not so much later on. I think it was a it was a slow dawning. But there was a point when I became I felt so miserable. I thought this is ridiculous. You know, I'm, I'm the sort of person who's interested in a lot of things. And there was a realization, I think, that instead of just always planning for something in the future, some idea, some mythical idea of what a good career looked like, I had to start paying attention to what actually gave me energy right now. And it took me another three years before I figured out exactly how to exit. You know, I... I didn't want to take, I, you know, and the jobs that I was doing, I, there was a lot that I enjoyed in it. I was uh, doing the U.S. desk for the U.K. government, so forecasting the U.S. economy. That was pretty interesting. And and then I worked with the Monetary Policy Committee in the U.K., which is like the Fed's uh, open market committee. So it was all really interesting stuff as far as it goes. But, you know, I, I took some time to, to really start to pay attention to what truly gave me joy. And actually, it took a while to get enough data to really be sure what the next right move was. And I think in general, I, I tend to be a little bit careful about changes in my, my personal life. And so, yeah, it was a slow accretion of, uh, of insights, let's say. But that first thing was, oh, God, maybe I should actually pay attention to how I feel right now rather than this goal in five, 10 years time. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really easy to fall in love with an ideal future and then just get stuck in this rut of going through the day-to-day process and not actually enjoying it. And I think that's a, that's an important wake-up call. After you left, is that when you started at McKinsey? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And what was your uh, experience there like? It was wonderful. I mean, I, I thought I'd go for a couple of years. So I decided, okay, so what was it that I was truly interested in? It was this human change. I became very interested in, you know, what it took for a group of people to be successful. And I realized my interest was more about an organization or a team or even an individual and a bit less about working at the, the macro scale of a country or a region, although, you know, fascinating though that is. I realized that my skills were, you know, a little bit more on the intimate scale. And so I thought, well, I'll go into consulting. I'll do organizational change work. And then I'll maybe go back into public service and, you know, take that knowledge with me. I didn't mean to stay at McKinsey for 12 years. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oops. What happened was that I really found it possible to build a quite an idiosyncratic, there's that word again, practice in behavioral change. And it was very much on the edges of what the firm did. But it was fascinating to me how if you articulated a clear story about what it was you were trying to build, and you could demonstrate a path to that, it was surprising and delightful to me just how much space I had to, to build and grow something that was quite odd and new for them. 
Now, when it comes to, to what you just said, which is creating a story, a clear story about what you're trying to build and helping your clients see that, that vision, this is something that you talk about in the book, and, and I wanted to ask you about it. In a section of the book, you describe both, I think this may have been at McKinsey or perhaps right now as CEO of 7Shift, your consulting company, you describe how you ask your clients, if you had no constraints, what would you do? And in the book, you say, well, they push back chuckling and telling you, well, that makes no sense at all, right? Or I do have constraints. That's precisely the problem. So how do you get them to loosen up their thinking? That's a good question. I mean, I learned that question when I was um, getting certified as a coach, that if people are feeling really stuck in their current ways of thinking, there can be only so far perhaps that you can take them by saying, okay, well, you know, what, what should you do next? It helps to actually get them to inhabit a different time and place. And actually that links to some other research on the power of distancing when we're very stressed by a situation, it turns out that the state of alert in our brains is somewhat dampened by adopting a position of some distance, whether it's, you know, saying in a year's time, how will I feel about this? Or what would I advise someone else about this? And there's something about taking yourself away from the immediate stressful situation that actually genuinely does seem to tell your brain the danger is, you know, further away and therefore less of an inhibition to good thinking. So I think that that's partly what allows people to think more clearly when they project themselves into an ideal future. Sometimes what I do to help them with that is I actually get them to get up and sit in a different place or, you know, we go for a walk and that helps as well to, to kind of say, okay, now we're, sh we're shifting our thinking. We're going to be a little bit playful with this. And sometimes I get people to, you know, really do the full, you know, visualize what's going on. What are people saying? How does it feel? And sometimes getting people to inhabit their, their different senses in this future state unlock something as well and being able to think about where the future goes. Certainly something which I found very helpful for myself when I'm feeling stuck. And then even better if you compare it with, okay, and then what's your very first step towards that ideal future? <laughs> Those are great questions. I'm uh, currently writing a book and one of the chapters is on thought experiments. That really resonates with what I talk about in the book in terms of visualizing an ideal future, thinking about how to get there. But then as you said also, stepping away from the problem as well. It's really amazing the list of people from all walks of life, from scientists to authors to entrepreneurs who've had incredible breakthroughs where they literally walk into a solution. Taking themselves on a walk somewhere, Nikola Tesla famously thought of the AC motor on this walk through a, a park in Budapest. And there's so many examples like that where people step away from the problem and yeah. all of a sudden the solution becomes clear. Yeah. And, and as you probably know, this is a really interesting and fairly new area of research to understand what the brain does when it's supposedly in resting mode, what the default mode is when, when we're not actually engaged in an active task. And, you know, I think for quite a while we thought that the brain was just taking a break. <laughs> but actually, it turns out that if you're intending to come back to a topic, your brain does not stop thinking about uh, the, the thing that you've been wrestling with. It actually just does some more encoding and consolidation of the information you've been playing with before. And it does it in a way that is happening below the level of our consciousness. And, you know, if you think about what insight is, it's connecting the dots in a new way or a different way to the way you were thinking about things before. It's that aha moment of saying, oh, right, now I'm putting the pieces together in a different way. And so there's something specific that is happening in the brain when we take a step back 
that actually is not our imagination. It really is a, a different type of thinking. And, you know, I think people have got all sorts of different names for this. I prefer encoding and consolidation. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some people say, oh, it's, you know, it's instinct or, you know, it's, it's intuition. I think we know that stepping away does something interesting and different. And we've got an increasing amount of evidence to, to support that. Now, during your time at McKinsey, your career was derailed for about 18 months or so. Can you walk us through what happened? I got sick and I was dumb. <laughs> Years earlier, I'd had an infection, which was an inner ear infection, a bit of the central nervous system that goes from the brain out to the ears. And uh, I'd woken up one day and I was so incredibly dizzy that I managed to take myself to the subway station and then thought that, oh my goodness, this is terribly dangerous because I, I really you know, had incredibly profound uh, vertigo. So I went back to bed and I was off for three weeks and then, you know, I got better. Then what happened was it recurred, this uh, this this virus, when I was at McKinsey and I did not stop to take three weeks off. I just plowed on. I thought it'd be okay and it got worse and it got worse. It got worse. And after about seven months of working with this dizziness, I fell off my perch completely and I thought I was going to be off work for a couple of weeks. Uh, there was a neurologist that I saw who said, I think you should stop work now. <laughs> and I was off work for six months. And then it took me after that about eight months to come back from being off work to being full time. So I had a very extended period of just gradually building up from part time, two days a week, three days a week. It was a huge wake up call. I just... I mean, first of all, I obviously realized that I had made a mistake in just trying to work through it. I was loving the work that I was doing. I mean, it wasn't that I was, you know, being whipped by my bosses at McKinsey. I was doing such interesting work in, you know, helping an organization shift its culture. And I was just, you know, I was so into it. I didn't want to stop. Perhaps another lesson about the, the short term versus the long term. I just, you know, I wasn't paying perhaps quite enough attention to my physical limitations. And it turns out that I am not invincible. And that was a big learning. And so after that, I think it really changed my sense of the link between physical well-being and mental well-being. I really learned a lot about the neurophysiology of stress. And I changed my approach to setting boundaries forever, really. Absolutely. And for me as well, my physical well-being has always taken a backseat to professional success. And it's only when I started to realize, as you're describing here, the link between physical and mental well-being and professional success yeah. that, I, that I began to take it more seriously. I, I mean, I, I experienced this with my writing and creativity. On days that I'm not feeling particularly happy, my writing suffers because, you know, you yeah. just feel in this rut <laughs> and that the creative juices are not flowing. And so now I take the time to actually, you know, try to put myself in a good mood. And the excuse that I give myself perhaps isn't the healthiest of excuses, but like, look, I love writing and I want to write a good article or a good chapter in this book. And so I allow myself to do silly things that are going to put me in a happy mood so that I, I could do the best work that I can. Yeah, I think that's very wise. I mean, I think we are an integrated system, you know, in terms of our mental well-being, our physical well-being, our emotional well-being. We are one system. And, you know, one of the things that has been fascinating to me over the years is to understand that those links are not just long-term links. If we do a tiny bit of aerobic exercise, you know, go, go for a 10-minute brisk walk, the impact on our 
cognitive and emotional functioning is immediate. We actually get a boost to our mood and our ability to focus. And when I was writing the book, I really used that. I got this really crappy elliptical trainer that was so rickety. It sort of moved from side to side as I used it. It was very, very basic. I had it next to me and I would jump on it. If I had a blockage when I was trying to write, I would say, okay, fine, you know, I'll get on it for 10 minutes. And then I would have the insight and I'd feel better. And then I'd come back. (laughs) And it just became such a tool. And likewise, you know, sleep, never, ever skimping on sleep, like, right. you know, and canceling meetings if need be. And it did get to the point where I was working, you know, on average, I think probably about two hours a day less than my McKinsey colleagues. And, you know, there was a part of me that thought, well, you know, maybe this is not going to be sustainable. Maybe they're going to find out. Maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, you know, I didn't get fired. I'm, I made partner and, um, you know, it seemed it, it turned out that actually, being conscious of your boundaries was, if anything, a helpful thing because it meant that the teams that we formed around the work that I was doing were, were pretty happy. And as you say, you do better work when you're happy. Now, this next question is not going to make sense to the members of the audience who haven't read your book, but it relates to what you just talked about. So I'm going to ask it and perhaps you can give it some context. Why do you hum Donna Summers, I feel love before client workshops? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. There was a review of the book that was in the Financial Times and the, the author mentioned that. And I, yes, I, it made me regret mentioning it in a book. So, yeah. So it turns out that, you know, the whole idea of wearing your lucky pants or a lucky tie to an interview, it's not completely bonkers. You know, our brains are highly associative machines. And when we think about any activity, any thought, you know, it's, it's a bunch of neurons firing together. And when we retrieve that memory, those neurons are firing together, perhaps a bit imperfectly because our memory is imperfect. But what happens then is it's a bit like a domino effect. So if you remember a, a song that was playing on a particularly happy night out with friends, then that song can trigger the mental state that you had that evening. And you may or may not be conscious of it. There's some debate about that. It happens even if you're not conscious of the connection. It just becomes your happy song. So so I think, okay, well, this is interesting. There's a lot of debate about this priming, as it's called, and a lot of disagreement about the ability to use this to prime other people to behave in a certain way. Because I think that makes sense, right? Because my happy song may not be your happy song. But we can use the knowledge of ourselves, you know, to say, okay, well, you know, when I wear this, it reminds me of a time that I felt confident and therefore it you know may actually boost my confidence, may genuinely create some of the same mental states. So I went to this Blue Man group show and I loved it. I so loved it. The finale had Donna Summer belting out I feel love and there were balloons and there were you know streamers and I was so happy and felt so energized by this incredible performance that it became a trigger for me a a deliberate trigger before I go into a sort of a big event you know I would I would sort of sit in the bathroom and listen to it and eventually it just became so habitual I just would you know hum it to myself and then I didn't even have to hum it I just had to think about it (laughs) as a way of you know giving myself a jolt of energy and jolt of performance energy so yeah there we are that's that is that is the story i will say that it evolves over time i have other songs too right you know (laughs) 
so right. that's the one I wrote on paper, which is now the one that, you know, is captured for posterity. No, when, when I when I read that in the book, I highlighted it and just wrote as a note, like, I can't tell you how much I love this. <laughs> and, and, you know, for me, that the happy song is Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. And, oh, you know, fantastic. And yeah. exactly for the reasons that you described, not because it's a particularly good song, but because it's played at every happy moment of my life. And so, you know, whatever I hear it, it just puts me in a good mood. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I have happy memories of that song, too. I remember belting it out in a choir festival, which, you know, is probably the least cool uh, performance of living on a prayer. But yeah, no, maybe I'll adopt that. Thank you. That's a, that's a, that's a hot tip. Now, speaking of singing, you also have some experience performing in a professional dance audition. Oh, God. Can you yes. tell us what happened? Yeah. So I don't know how much you guys might remember this, but the London 2012 Olympics was known as the volunteer games because there was a real effort to try and involve people in all sorts of aspects of running the Olympic games. There was an audition, an open audition for amateurs to come forward and audition to be part of the opening and closing ceremony. And my husband and I sing and, you know, we thought, oh, this will be cool. This will be, you know, let's give it a try. We had no idea, actually, that they were not hiring amateur singers. They got us in the first rehearsal. There was 200 people in the room and they got us to do a whole ton of things, which were, I mean, basically, actually, can you follow instructions? So there was some puzzles. And can you do a conga line for 30 minutes and keep a smile on your face? And then there was one task, which was a dance task. And you had to learn a little dance routine and then perform it in front of the judges. And what happened was I overperformed on the dance task. It was not a complicated little routine. I was working really hard to learn it. They didn't see that. I just came up and I did it. And, you know, I looked a little bit too comfortable doing it. The second rehearsal, we didn't know what we were going to be funneled into. We didn't know what the next audition was going to be. You just knew that you'd passed and that you were being summoned. And I walked in. It became, within about five minutes, it became clear that this was a professional dance audition. <laughs> and of the 200 people in the room, 194 of them were professional dancers, like, you know, fully kind of, you know, live, gorgeous, pirouetting, amazing lycra everywhere. And then about six of us were in the situation that I was in, which was like, we were not dancers. We just, you know, we're sort of people, you, you know, your friends might say, oh yeah, she's a good dancer, you know, on the dance floor. Oh my goodness. So I then thought, okay, well, what do I do here? Because we had to learn this very complex routine to Adele's rolling in the deep. And we had a while and the only way that we could learn it was just by watching. And you know, the instructions included, if you can't do a triple pirouette, do a single one. I'm like, I'm, so I'm there trying to learn how to, like watching the proper dancers and trying to learn how to do a pirouette, thinking, I should have learned to do this. This is a life skill. I should know how to do this. I thought, well, look, I'm in the business of trying to help people navigate difficult situations. How fascinating. <laughs> I should really try and embrace this. This is clearly going to be a disaster. I had to perform this in front of the other people in the room, which was, you know, obviously 194 professional dancers and the panel of four judges. And I was terrified. My heart was beating so fast. But I stuck it out. And all I could do was sort of move in the right direction at the vaguely the right time. <laughs> <laughs> I did it with a big smile on my face while I was sort of just freaking out internally. 
And then I went home and I thought, oh, well, never mind. I was hurting all over. I soaked in the bathtub and I thought, oh, oh well, never mind. That was a great experience. How interesting, you know. And then they actually offered me a consolation role, which was just this nutso kind of thing where we were building a polystyrene model of John Lennon's head to the tune of Imagine. And it was badged as a dance role, but it was actually really a weightlifting role. We had to kind of just carry these huge pieces of polystyrene. And so, you know, I got a role. (laughs) 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 And it it was pretty awesome. I mean, it took 50 hours of rehearsals, which, you know, sometimes didn't feel like the best use of time, but it was a really cool experience. But that audition, I think, really reconnected me to what it feels like to be so completely out of your depth and so panicked that you can't, you know, you can barely function. And I thought that was a useful thing for a coach to coach to experience. Absolutely. I think it's a useful thing for all of us to experience because I'm seeing this particularly with this new generation and, and the students that I'm teaching in the law school classroom, but many of them are not well prepared to deal with even minor setbacks, like getting rejected mm-hmm. from a job or getting anything less than an A minus on a paper. So there's something I think to be said about almost inoculating yourself with failure, <laughs> which is what you yeah. did, right? You know, put yourself in this Apparently impossible situation where there is no way that you're going to succeed when you've got 195 professional dancers in the room and just failing and, you know, seeing what happens. Yeah. You know, as opposed to sort of secluding ourselves from failure and especially our children, letting them fall on the grass and then teaching them the value of, well, one, learning from failure and two, actually treating minor crises like this as training for the bigger one that might come down the road. Yeah, absolutely. When I looked back before talking to you today, I was looking back on all the the failures and the bumps on the road. There was so much to learn from each of them. And, you know, it's perhaps it sounds a little obvious or trite to say, but I, I really do think that, you know, when you are going through a difficult situation, it is one of the most powerful things you can ask yourself to say, okay, well, what is it I'm learning from this? And actually that there is some research to suggest that that is a useful question because learning is inherently rewarding for the average brain. And so to refocus your energies and saying, okay, well, this is terrible. uh, So (laughs) what can I learn from it? It just gives you a chance to salvage something from the situation. And of course, you know, we grow from these experiences if they're not so terrible that they take us down. And of course, you know, there are terrible things that happen to people that are very hard to bounce back from. But, you know, research suggests that in the, you know, the world of people who support those who have PTSD, this sense of being able to find agency and control and one of those ways being finding the learning in a situation that it helps to restore mental health. So, yeah, absolutely. I I think that I do feel that, you know, my empathy levels took a massive increase (laughs) from that dance experience. But, you know, I could say something similar about all of the other things that went wrong in my life. Speaking of learning from failure, how do you get the organizations that you work with to learn from failure? Because my experience is that at, at large organizations, the tendency is to hide failures, the tendency is to reframe failures or successes, or the tendency is to overreact to failure by punishing the people who might be supposedly responsible for it, even though they're usually the symptom and, and not the cause of the problem. And, you know, amidst all of these responses, very little learning actually happens. So how do you get your clients to actually learn to learn from failure? 
a lot of organizations say, oh, we, we're a learning organization. We want to be a learning organization. And, you know, often that's a bit too nebulous for people to get their hands around because, as you say, you know, something actually goes wrong. And then, of course, people have an instinct to, to smooth it over or not to talk about it because it, it feels very threatening and very, you know, very scary. So what I do is I teach routines. I teach habits, organizational habits, little safe routines that people can use to talk through difficult situations. So I would say that of all the workshops that I run and of all the techniques that I teach, the, the the ones that probably come up most are the ones around how do you raise a difficult topic? How do you talk about something that's gone wrong or that's been problematic? You know, what are the steps to take to make sure that you're not taking it personally, you're not assigning blame, you're seeking to understand. And, you know, some of that is about just learning certain forms of words to use and just having that go-to routine to, to pull on when, when you're in the heat of the moment. Because I think it's, you know, when you're stressed, you need specifics, you need a clear little routine that is a sort of shared language. It's very hard to just say, oh, well, you know, let's now all be kind of grown-ups about, you know, learning from this. That's what I've seen work. And I think, you know, more broadly, if you think about cognitive biases and how how difficult it is to help people figure out how to get around groupthink and the blind spots that we all have when we're making decisions. Actually, again, you know, the answer that I've seen to work again and again is to teach groups of people little routines so they have a shared language for talking about difficult things. And then you've got half a chance of being able to have a good conversation. You've uh, consulted, I'm sure, hundreds of businesses at this point, if not more. If you were the CEO of a large company, what's one practice that you would institute and one practice that you would kill? I think one thing that I see in organizations is there's insufficient reflection on what's working and why. Mm. There's often sort of generalized, yeah, everything's amazing, fantastic, amazing, fantastic. And then, you know, there's a sort of blame culture around specific things that go wrong. I think, you know, what's often missing is a really intelligent excavation of why something is working and how you might spread it and what you would learn from that. And so, you know, what does that mean in practice? That means leaders getting, managers getting into the habit of not just patting people on the back, but saying, why do you think that worked? And what do you think we could learn from that? And what do you think we could spread from that? And I've seen managers who do adopt those techniques, just build them into their kind of weekly meetings with their teams, see massive increases in their team's motivation. And so, you know, I think we've been talking about learning from failure. I, I think I'd like to see a bit more learning from success too. A lot of teams waste a lot of time doing round the table updates rather than doing real work together. And when you think about the amount of the opportunity cost of the time of a group of smart people sitting around and each of them saying, well, this is what's going on and I'm doing this and this is what's going on. <laughs> and you just think, wow, okay, people are sitting there on their laptops and, they are, <laughs> and they're looking at their phones because they're just basically bilateral conversations with the team leader just happening while everybody's sitting in the room. Oh, deadening, deadening. And you think about how many people, you know, feel that they've got too many meetings. I think make a meeting something that you can only do with everybody in the room together and then everything else to be updates that you can circulate in other ways that would free up so much time and energy and it would make it so much more fun when you're actually together with your colleagues we're almost uh coming to the end of our time here but i want to give you the opportunity to share any parting words if you have any on failure any anecdotes that we didn't cover or really anything that we should have covered and did not cover 
I joke these days that when something goes wrong, it's something that I can use in a speech or in a in a story. There was a speech I was giving not too long ago where it turned out that my microphone had failed, but nobody had told me. And it was a room full of, you know, 600 people or something. And, you know, about 20 minutes into the speech, someone put their hand up and said, we can't really hear you very well. <laughs> at this moment, I mean, your heart sinks through oh, your boots. And, um, you know, I, I think what happens now is it's not just what can I learn from this, but, oh, I can use this. I think actually, you know, that mentality of I can use this is something which I could have adopted even earlier in my life. And I think everybody can, you know, it's like, okay, how can I use this? There's always a good story to tell. You know, there's such power in showing some vulnerability and telling the story about how something goes wrong. You know, it's a great way of building rapport to open up about this stuff. You know, there's all sorts of things that you can use your failures for. So I would encourage people to think about think about that. And my favorite quote on failure is from Edward Albee, the playwright. So he's, um, I, might, I might mangle one or two of the words, but he says, if you're willing to fail interestingly, you will tend to succeed in an interesting way. So there we go. I think that's the perfect note to wrap this conversation up on. This is so much fun, Caroline. Where can people find more about you? Well, I have a website, which is carolineweb.co carolineweb.co and they can sign up for my newsletter which is very very occasional but there's also a lot of articles and podcasts and and so on and there's also a website that i have just launched around the book it's a breaking news uh how to have a good day.com how to have a good day.com and there's all sorts of resources there if people are interested in thinking about how to apply behavioral science to professional life we'll put all of that in the show notes for the audience Caroline, thank you so much again for joining us. This was so much fun. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.